created the whole world. And then he says that by his, the power of his very hand, the entire universe holds together. That's, a, that's an amazing thought. Not only did he create the world in which we live, but through his power, the entire universe even holds together. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 says this with regard to Christ. He says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, Christ is the one who who holds everything, even the far reaches of our universe are held together by his very power. And so therefore we declare as we sing a song like that, God, it's not just the universe. It's not just the world that holds together, but our very lives hold together by your, by your power. And if it were not for you, everything in our lives would fall completely apart. Now, interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul goes on to say in Colossians chapter 1, he says, And Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That brings a very important question to our mind. If we acknowledge that God is the one, that, that, that our Lord Jesus, by his very power, everything holds together, the question that begs to be asked is, is he in first place in your life? Is he truly preeminent? Does he command the foremost spot in all of your affections and in everything that you do? I hope that is your confession this morning because really that is at the essence of the harvest song that we just sang. If you can consider the confession, Lord, I need you. That is a proclamation of our total dependence upon him that we truly can't move forward in our lives. We have no hope for the life to come if it is not for him and what he has done for us. So let me ask you again, is that, is that your confession? I certainly hope that it is. I'm really glad we sang that song this morning because I think it's not only a, a, a declaration of our dependence upon God, but it is also a reminder to us that whenever we move away from Him, whenever we move away from that dependence upon God, a total dependence upon Him, whenever we fail to stick close to Him and when we wander off, when we choose to do things our own way, when we allow our affections to be drawn away toward other things, then it reminds us that our world truly will fall apart. Disaster and calamity are right around the corner whenever those are decisions that we make. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Genesis, but we want to go back there this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. The last time we met together, well, I wasn't here when, when Pastor Ted preached from Genesis. And I want y'all to know he begged me to preach from Genesis 34. He came to me and he said, listen, of all the other chapters in that book, I want this one. Let me have the hardest chapter in the book of Genesis to preach from. And so I tried to talk him out of it, but I, he was not going to be dissuaded. So I gave it to him. It was against my better judgment. But I want you to know he did a wonderful job with that text. And if you were here for that sermon, you'll recall that, that in chapter 34, what we read was that Jacob and his family had re-entered the land of Canaan. But rather than going all the way back to Bethel, the city in Canaan where Jacob had vowed he would return after he had 
encountered God there some 30 or so years earlier, well, he stopped short and he settled in the land of Shechem. Now, it's, it's 30 years later when we get to chapter 35. And or 30 years earlier when he, had, when he had gotten to Bethel, what we realized was the case was that he was on the run from his brother Esau. He was headed to the land of Padan Aram. He was out going out of Canaan. And back in chapter 28, you'll recall that he encountered God there at Bethel and, and he built an altar there. Effectively, he sang the words of the song that we just sang, Lord, I need you. And he established an altar there. And he went on to promise the Lord if, if God would protect him, if God would provide for him and bring him back to the land of Canaan, then he would come back there to Bethel and that he would worship the Lord there and he would give him a tenth of everything that he had. He would give him a tithe. But unfortunately now, some 30 years later, Jacob had stopped singing that song. He wasn't singing, Lord, I need you anymore. And by this point, he had reconciled with his brother Esau. He had come out from underneath the heavy hand of his uncle Laban and all of the, the, the difficulties that he had experienced there. And we also recognize that across those 30 years, God had been faithful to Jacob. He had, he had blessed him. He had protected him. He provided for him. In fact, Jacob was now a very, very, very rich man. But rather than allowing all of those blessings to propel him to obey the Lord fully, Jacob instead failed to live up to his promises. Simply put, we could say that Jacob drifted. Slowly, perhaps, even imperceptibly at first, but definitively, nonetheless, Jacob chose to do things his own way. And in the process, he watched silently as his own family drifted from God. He watched as their affections were, were drawn away toward other things. And sadly, as chapter 34 reveals, calamity struck Jacob's house. His daughter Dinah got caught up with all of the things that the other uh, women and girls in the land of Shechem were doing and ultimately she was seized and she was violated by the prince of Shechem. Dinah's brothers, ultimately Simeon and Levi, they were enraged by what happened and they ultimately killed all of the men of Shechem in their anger and in their revenge. And throughout this sorry episode, we don't hear as much as a peep from Jacob. The text tells us that he held his peace after what happened with Dinah, and his only chastisement of his sons centered around his concern that their actions were only going to cause him trouble. They were going to make him obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. And as Pastor Ted said in his sermon, he said, at this moment, we see Jacob at possibly his worst. We have seen him as a deceiver, a thief, and a con man, but here we see a heart of selfishness and disregard for his family and for others, which is really what makes this episode in Jacob's life so painful to watch. Now you'll recall that I have entitled this series of sermons in Genesis the story that explains our stories. And the reason that I remind you of that title of this series this morning is because if you have ever been in a place like Jacob found himself, if you've ever hit rock bottom, if you've ever messed up so badly that it is painful to watch, then what I want you to know is what we're going to read about this morning is for you. But maybe you might say, well, that's not exactly my story, Pastor. I hadn't exactly hit rock bottom. I haven't, I haven't failed as miserably as, as, as Jacob did, certainly. 
hadn't made that big of a mess of my life. But the truth is, if you are honest with yourself and with God, the words to that song that we just sang, Lord, I need you. Well, if they were just that, if they were just words and not truly the desperate cry of your heart, well, if that is the case, then hang on because what we are going to read about this morning is for you as well. You see, if you haven't hit rock bottom yet, but the Lord is not the center of your life, then I have news for you. Rock bottom is not far away. And therefore, the question that begs to be asked, the question that really truthfully hangs out in front of every single one of us this morning as we encounter this passage is this. How does one reverse the slide toward rock bottom? Or what do you do if you've already hit there? Well, let's read our text this morning and hear the word of God. Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Then God said to Jacob, Arise. Go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So, they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and he called the place El Bethel because their God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again and he came, when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. And then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured the drink offering on it and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity we have to gather in your house to study your word. Now we pray that you would use it to strengthen us and to empower us, but also to convict us of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. Draw us to you. Through your word, this is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, as we contemplate from this passage how to reverse the slide toward rock bottom, or alternately, what to do, how to rebound from rock bottom, 
if you've already hit there, what I want us to do is to organize our thoughts around four words. And those words I hope that you will understand as we go through here will help us be able to answer those questions or at least uh, contemplate the answers to those questions. I've listed the first one there for you on your outline. It's the word comfort. Comfort. Now that word may seem a little strange in a lot of the context and a lot of the passages that I've just read for you. But I believe that this passage should actually serve as a great source of comfort for us, particularly for those of us who have failed miserably in our lives. Notice with me again the very first phrase of the first verse there in in chapter 35. It begins this way, Then God said to Jacob. Now, in light of the failure that we looked at last time in chapter 34, in light of the passive, negligent, self-centeredness of Jacob, don't you find it comforting that God actually speaks to him again? We might, just, we might just expect God to send down fire and brimstone on Jacob and on his family or at least to turn his back on them and never speak to them again. But God doesn't do that. God speaks to Jacob. And I believe that there, we should take great comfort in the fact that God speaks to him. But notice also that, the, that we take even more comfort in the fact that what's noteworthy is that what God says to Jacob is dripping with grace. Even though God spoke to Jacob, we might expect him to say something like this. Well, that's it. I'm done with you. I mean, I've called on you to be a blessing to all the nations. And what have you done? You've gone in there and your sons have killed all the men of this city. I've had all of you that I want to have. That might be what we would expect God to say. But again, God defies our expectations. Instead, in his grace, he says this, arise and go to Bethel. Dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. I don't don't know about you, but that encourages me. It, It reminds me of the fact that even when I have turned my back on God, even when I have neglected my responsibilities and made a complete mess of things, God does not turn his back on me. God doesn't do with us like what you see some people do when they're finished with a cigarette and they throw it down on the ground and they take their foot and they just grind it into the ground. Sometimes that may be our concept of what God does with us whenever we fail, but that's not how God responds to those who have failed. Instead, like a shepherd, he continues to go out and seek the lost sheep that have gone astray. Like the father of the prodigal son, he still stands at the the door of his house with his arms wide open looking for the ones who will return to him with open arms. You and I should take great comfort in the fact that the scriptures reveal God to be one who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness towards sinners like you and like me. But I want you to notice that that word of comfort, comfort leads us to the next word that I want us to consider from the text. Notice the next word on your outline. It's the word completion. Completion. Now that word too may be a little surprising in light of the context. An odd choice maybe. But notice that basically what God is telling Jacob is that he needed to complete his vow. He needed to fulfill the commitments that he had made. I mentioned it earlier, but back in chapter 28, Jacob had promised that if God would provide for him and if God would bring him back safely to his homeland, then then basically Jacob says, I'll let you be my God. And and then Jacob promised his devotion. He he promised to dedicate the land to God. 
And he promised to give God a tithe, or we might say a tenth of all that he had acquired. Well, back here in verse 1, God is reminding Jacob of that promise. He, he tells him to return to Bethel and to fulfill his commitments. And while God doesn't mention the tithe specifically there in verse 1, he does tell Jacob to make an altar there to God, which necessarily entails the fulfillment of Jacob's, Jacob's promise of dedication and devotion. And what that tells us is that God's ultimate desire for Jacob was, was for him to rekindle the relationship that he had had with God through worship and through obedience. Here's, here's where I think all of us who have, especially those of us that may sense that we've drifted a little bit spiritually from God, those of us who may, may, if we're honest, truly say, I don't know that I'm as close to the Lord today as maybe I was at an earlier point in my life. Here's where we need to take special attention. Or maybe, maybe we're one of those that have just completely made a, a, a complete mess of things and we've fallen as far down as we know. This is the spot that we ought to sit up and we ought to pay attention. Because here's what I want you to know. God has a way of bringing us back to the commitments we made to him at earlier points in our lives. God has his way of getting in there and rattling the pots and the pans in our kitchen and getting our attention and bringing us back to commitments that we have made earlier in our lives. You see, God takes those vows seriously and so should we. Many of us have made promises to God at various points. Sometimes it was when we first entered into a relationship with him. We said, God, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Sometimes it comes as a matter of, of, of a, a, a recommitment of our life to the Lord. We, we came to a spot that we put our foot in the ground and drew a line and said, I'm not going past that place again and I'm recommitting myself to the Lord. Some of us in this room have experienced some very difficult moments in our lives and we have promised God that if he would bring us from those moments and, and take us away from that and, and protect us, that we would, we would do for him everything that he ever asked us to do. Regardless of the circumstance behind those vows, what I want you to know is that God calls us to rekindle the fire that once burned inside of us by completing those vows. One has rephrased God's command to Jacob here in verse 1 this way. Come back to me. Come back. Be as near to me, Jacob, as you were when you first set up that stone and anointed it with oil there in Bethel. Come back and be near to me. Listen, if you have slid to rock bottom or if you know that you are on your way there, understand that embedded within this text is a message of comfort and in it is also a message of completion. Both are key concepts to grasp if you are going to reverse the slide toward or if you're going to rebound from rock bottom. Those two words lead me to the next one that I have given for you there. The third word on your outline is the word correction. Correction. Thus far, all we've read about is what God has done and what God has said. So naturally, we want to know how does Jacob respond to what God has said and what he has, what he has done for Jacob? What, what is Jacob's answer going to be? Well, notice again what we read in verse 2. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. 
The first thing that I want you to note is that when God spoke to Jacob again here in chapter 35 and told him to go to Bethel and to, to build an altar and worship him there, it elicited within Jacob this, this immediate sense of the need to personal and family cleansing. As we noted earlier, Jacob had been negligent. He'd been negligent in his own personal holiness, but he had been negligent in leading his family in their personal holiness as well. And so notice the three commands that he gives there. He says, put away your foreign gods or put away your idols and then purify yourself and then change your garments. In other words, you need to, 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 to do some house cleaning. Now, if you remember, just before Jacob fled from Laban in Padan Aram, his wife Rachel went into her father's tent and stole some of the teraphim that were there. She stole some of the, the, the local little house gods that, that Laban himself would bow down to and worship in his own tent. Jacob was unaware that Rachel had stolen those. She had stuffed them down inside the, 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 the camel bag that she had there and, and no one knew that she had them. But here about a decade later, Jacob knew that she had them and he absolutely knew that the rest of his family had collected them along the way. And he tells him it's time to get rid of all of them. Incidentally, that's another sign that Jacob had shown negligence toward leading his family in the worship of the one true God. The fact that they had all of these to begin with. Now, right about here, we might be tempted to check out and say, well, this really doesn't apply to me. I mean, after all, I'm a Christian. I'm not an idolater. We don't, have, we don't have idols in our lives, right? Or do we? Consider the fact that idols aren't just little statues that can be hid in saddlebags and kept hidden from the rest of the world, no. In fact, a much more accurate definition of what an idol is is that it is anything that takes the place of God in your life. It is anything that blocks you from growing in the Lord and doing His will. We might even say it this way. Anything or anyone who takes the place of the Lord in that song that we sang earlier. When we sing out and we say anything else, I need you. If we, anything else proceeds or gets top billing over the Lord, that has the potential and it becomes an idol in your life. For some, it's career. It's moving up the ladder. It's, it's making a success out of your life. For others, it's affluence. It's collecting all the things that advertisers tell us that we need. Still others, it's the worship of their own personal fulfillment. They want to be happy. Regardless of what, I just need to be fulfilled. And so they will do anything to bring self-gratification into their lives. And still for some, it's leisure, it's travel, it's sports, it's TV, it's games. It's whatever you fill in the blank that makes you feel like that's what you need to be happy and to be, can have a happy life. None of these things and hundreds more like them are bad in and of themselves. But when they become the primary pursuit of your life, when, when any of those things become the subject about which your heart sings, when they become the thing about which you think about more than you do anything else, when they become the one that pushes God out and you don't have time for God's word, you don't have time for continuing to, to move forward in your maturity with God, when there is anything that you are unwilling to let go of that will allow you to take on more for what God has wanted you to do, then those things have become 
an idol in your life and they have blocked your growth in the Lord and hindered you from doing his will. And I want you to note in light of that, notice what Jacob says. Jacob tells his family, get all of those things and get rid of them. And then he tells them, purify yourself. Now, most likely that command involved them washing themselves in a purification process, getting rid of the filth that had, they had allowed to infiltrate their lives. And then finally, Jacob told them to change your clothes, change your garments, which dramatically symbolized a purified way of living. It, it symbolized a transition from one state to another. Now, now, based upon these commands, what we as people who want to reverse our slide toward or we want to rebound from hitting rock bottom, what we need to understand is that a correction in our lives must occur. We must identify those things in our lives which we have allowed to become idols. And we must put them away. Furthermore, we must cleanse ourselves by confessing our sins and by washing ourselves in God's forgiveness. And then we must change our clothes. In other words, we must change our behavior. In fact, note, note how similar what, what Jacob tells his family to do, how similar it is to what the Apostle Paul tells Christians to do in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 22 and following, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and then put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, that is nothing short of repentance. That is exactly what repentance looks like. It means getting rid of all of the stuff that's been hanging on, stopping your pursuit down the path that is leading you toward destruction, turning around and going in the other direction. That is what repentance is all about. It's how you stop the slide toward rock bottom, and it is how you rebound from there if that's where you find yourself. Now notice what happens next. Jacob set the course for his family. And he says in verse 3, Let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way since in which I have gone. Notice, notice that involved in Jacob's corrected course was also the act of remembering. He, he recounted for himself and for his family that it was God who had answered him in his distress and had walked with him every step of his journey. You know, I am convinced that one of the reasons why you and I begin to drift from the Lord and begin to drift from the commitments that we have made to him, one of the reasons that we decidedly choose to abandon his will for our lives and move in other directions and take other paths is because we don't stop and make time to remember all of the ways that God has answered us when we have called on him in the past and remind ourselves of his continual presence in our lives in the presence. When, when it comes to our own personal walk with the Lord, if we don't take time to recall the ways in which God has delivered us and cared for us and, and brought us through the valleys and set our feet up on the mountaintops, then our perspective on life will be skewed. Our vision and our focus will be changed to just what we can see in our immediate context. We will take our eyes off the Lord and we will take our eyes off of following Him and we will begin to slide inevitably every single time. 
Remembering is an important part of correction. But brothers and sisters, so is obedience. Notice according to verse 4, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. In that time, many wore earrings that had been converted over to idolatrous practices. And they symbolized the faith of cultic observances. So, so Jacob, his family, they took all of those earrings and they took all of the other idols that they had been worshiping and they brought them out and Jacob buried those things underneath an oak tree right outside of Shechem. Now consider this, Jacob didn't try to reuse those things. He didn't try to take them and trade them in to get something else of value. No, he buried them. In other words, he put them in the ground and refused to give them any place in his life or the life of his family ever again. Those things, those idols, those false gods, they had garnered the attention of his family and had drugged them away from God. And Jacob says it is time to abandon them. And so he dug a hole, he put them in there and he turned his back on them and walked away. A new day had come in Jacob's life. He who had fallen so far to hit rock bottom in Shechem now abandoned all of those things that had garnered for his attention before and now he turned his face toward Bethel. And then notice what happens. Notice the last word on your outline. It is the word confirmation. Remember, the situation was not good. All of the men had been killed in Shechem and so as a result, all of their neighbors and all the other clans outside of Shechem were now mad. They were angered. They wanted blood from, from Jacob and from his sons and so they were all ready to kill them. But notice, notice that if that were to happen, then all the promises that God had made to Jacob would be null and void. So, Remember, God had promised Jacob that he would become a great company of people and that, that, that the blessings that had been originally given to his grandfather Abraham and had been passed down to his father Isaac would also be his. And certainly that promise could never be fulfilled if Jacob and all of his sons were slaughtered. And so notice verse 5, the terror of God was upon those cities that were all around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God's mighty hand of protection rested upon Jacob as he made his way toward Bethel. And then once he arrived, he named the place El Bethel, and it literally means God of the house of God. In other words, Jacob was saying, I haven't just encountered the place where God is, I've encountered God himself. Bethel was not just a location, it was the place where he had encountered the living true God. And he was the God that had protected him for all of those years caring for him in spite of his weak faith and in spite of his carnal lifestyle. And then at the very end of this text that I read for you this morning, notice, notice how God once more confirms all of the promises that he had given to Jacob. First of all, in verse 9, he changes his name again. He reminds him of the name change. You are no longer to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel, one who has wrestled with God and has prevailed. Then again, in verse 11, God reveals himself as God Almighty. Literally, he says, I am El Shaddai. 
I am the one who has the power to do everything that I have commanded that I will do. That's what El Shaddai means. I will give you everything that I have promised. I am reaffirming for you that which I have so told you would happen. And then in verses 11 and 12, he uses terms like fruitfulness and nation and company of nations and kings and land. All of these promises had been given to Abraham and now God reaffirms them for Jacob. They're going to be promises for you too. You can depend on these things. So in this passage, we've been comforted by the grace and the mercy of God that is demonstrated to a prodigal sinner who had hit rock bottom. And we've been reminded of the necessity of rekindling our love and, and our passion for the Lord by completing and fulfilling the vows that we have made to Him. And we have recognized that when we have drifted away and when we have rebelled against God, what we must do is correct our course through repentance, forsaking our idols and purifying ourselves and changing our behaviors. And then finally, God confirms his promises. And that should encourage us that there is a God who stands with his arms wide open, ready to receive sinners and prodigals who will come to him in faith, repenting of their sin and trusting in him. What we know is that God always keeps his promises. He always makes good on everything that he ever said. Even the times when Jacob had wandered far away from him, far away from the will of God, even when he foolishly set up camp only a few miles from where he should have been, God still nevertheless was there. What chapter 34 revealed was that Jacob had hit rock bottom. What chapter 35 shows us is that he didn't stay there. And brothers and sisters, that ought to be an encouraging word for every single one of us in this room who have ever failed. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we have slid and we are on our way sometimes still sliding. But God says you do not have to stay and that's what leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. In order to reverse the slide toward or to rebound from rock bottom, you must rekindle your passion for the Lord. Repent of that which you have allowed to take his place. And remember his promises and his past faithfulness. Have you hit rock bottom? Have you made a mess? Of your life? If you have, know this with the Lord there is forgiveness and there is mercy. There is pardon for sinners and wayward sons and daughters like us who will repent and humble ourselves before the Lord. Come to Him this morning. Bathe in His forgiveness. Be washed in His blood. Perhaps you've done that, but honestly, honesty compels you to admit that you're not following the Lord as you should. Other things have captured your heart and your attention. And when we sang that song earlier, Lord, I need you. Well, the truth was they were only words. They truly weren't the cry of your heart. If that is the case, then I want you to know this is a wake-up call for you to abandon your idols, to purify your heart, and to change your behavior. God calls you to repentance and to a life of devotion to him. Don't continue down the road that leads to rock bottom. Don't continue to pursue other things that will only leave you empty. 
Return to the Lord. Rekindle the fire that once burned brightly in you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father.